Welcome to Campion Conversations, an informal podcast discussion of pop culture and the liberal arts. My name is Dr. Colin Dray. The sharp suit, preferably a tuxedo. The martini, shaken, not stirred. The gadgets and exotic locations. The beautiful women and death-defying stunts. For over 50 years and at least two dozen films, the adventures of James Bond have become a cinematic institution. And yet, in many ways, Bond has remained little more than a collection of tropes. Ian Fleming created his English spy in 1953 for a series of noirish espionage novels, but it wasn't until 1962, when the character was performed by Sean Connery in the film Dr. No, that his place in the communal consciousness was established. Since then, the globe-hopping MI6 agent has been portrayed by Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan, George Lazenby, and most recently, Daniel Craig. But what is it that defines this character? Indeed, can he be said to be a character at all? And what element can be said to be essential to his cinematic representation. To discuss the canon of the 007 films and the enigmatic cultural icon that is James Bond, I'm joined today by Dr. Luciano Boschiero, lecturer in history and dean of Campion College, Jeremy Bell, lecturer in history and theology, and Thomas Flynn, lecturer in classical languages. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you. Before we get started on the questions, I did just want to put in context what the intent of this conversation is, possibly just to assuage everybody's fears, but also maybe to sort of set a baseline for the audience who might be listening to this. Um, This is in no way meant to be a definitive description of the character of James Bond or a long-winded analytical discussion. This this is more... Because I'm fascinated by this character in the way that he's a cultural icon, the way that everybody sort of seems to have this multifaceted vision of who he is or how he operates. So before we begin discussing the presentation of the character in the film series, it might behoove us to get a sense of the character as he sits on the page. Uh, So I might start with you, Jeremy. You have expressed uh, an interest in the books before. I believe you've read a number of them. I think I've read pretty much all of them. Possibly with, I mean, there are a couple of short stories I may not have read, but I've, I've basically read most of, if not all of the books. At least all of the books written by Fleming. Can you give us a sense of how Bond appears before he's presented in cinema? I mean, are there any differences? Is there anything that you would say defines him as a character? I was about to say he's a more serious character, but that's not the right way of putting it. He, um, I mean, of course, in one sense, it's not serious at all, but he, um, he loves danger. He loves being in the thick of things. There's a sentence in one of the books, I forget which one, about how he relaxes as long as he's in danger. He actually, at the end of the day, I think, has a rather bleak view of life and the world. He knows he's in a business where he's to kill and he might get killed any time, and that's how he likes it. Also, despite the fact that the books are full of luxurious living, I mean, that's part of what's appealing about them, Bond himself has a puritanical streak. Right at the beginning of the book of uh, Goldfinger, there's a wonderful scene, it's beautifully described, where he has um, stone crabs with someone who's going to employ him to check out the cheating at a card game that, of course, also makes it into the film. After he's eaten this dinner, which is graphically described, and it really does make you want to go and eat crabs yourself, the character who's taken him to dinner says, so, Mr Bond, I doubt that anyone's eaten a better dinner in the world tonight than us, or something like that. What do you think? And Bond's reaction, his internal reaction, is described, and basically he feels disgusted. He never wants to have a meal like this again, and he certainly never wants to have any kind of meal again with this man. Is it like a vulgarity of opulence or something? It's not even vulgarity. It's more that something about the um, the high life, the opulence, 
it just disgusts him um, for, right. a mo- for a moment at least. I mean, he's enjoyed it up to that point, and it's described as the most delicious meal he's ever tasted. <clears throat> so, as I say, there is, yes, a puritanical and um, in a way detached and cynical side to him, which I think doesn't come out quite so much in the films. Also, I mean, it's worth mentioning this in, in the short story upon which Quantum of Solace is based. I've never seen the film, Quantum of Solace. Um, everyone I... says it's terrible, but I've never <laughs> seen it. I've got no idea what happens in it. But I know it's meant to be a spy film. The short story is not a spy story at all. It's a long... It's not even a conversation. It's basically a long monologue that someone Bond meets, gives to him about a marriage breakdown. Mm. And at the end of it, Bond is profoundly moved and he actually reflects look this makes my world my life seem pretty empty you know, this is the real world as it were not my sort of you know, living at the edge of danger the whole time my my understanding of the film is that they took only the title to yes, utilize for, for the film mm. maybe you could make an argument that 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 sense of loneliness and breakdown of a romance might be thematically in the mix there but uh, i think other than that mm. it's it's pretty disconnected so, would you say that in in that characterization, Bond? I mean, is he psychotic? That that sounds kind of detached from his humanity in a sense. That he's, oh no, he's, I wouldn't. He enjoys the danger. He, he yeah, is th- only alive that, when he could be dead. Sure, there's that side to him. I mean, there's also this odd, um, a, a recurring theme in in the books actually, which I think doesn't come out at all in the films, is that Bond initially thinks he's getting into something fairly low-key, um, not a big problem, even a boring assignment, and he discovers, whoa, someone's about to blow right. up the world or something like that. And often going along with that, he actually reflects on himself and thinks, look, what, a, what an amateur I am, what a fool I am, or something like that. I mean, that happens in... Um, now, let me just get this right. Something like that happens in Casino Royale, but it certainly happens in Goldfinger, and it happens in Dr. No as well. In Dr. Mm. No, he thinks he's investigating a very trivial thing um and he discovers no there's this plot to um attack miami or something like that i forget the details and yeah not only does he reflect on what an idiot he's been but also from time to time he um there's also this weird patriotism that comes out in bond um in in the books which again it's sort of there more as a joke in the films but oddly enough it's more serious in the books this is the for england james kind of yeah indeed that's right and, and and he takes it he does take it seriously. Um, and in fact, I suppose that's most obvious in the very first book, in, um, in Casino Royale, where he goes through a certain phase of thinking, look, I shouldn't be a spy anymore. Um, and there's this whole, it sounds a bit cliched to us nowadays, but there's this whole, um, oh, I don't actually know who the good guys are anymore and the bad guys and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and then it's the whole business with um, Vesper and her betrayal that, as it were, wakes him up. No. You know, yes, I'm on the right side, something like that. Oh, um, right. So okay. That sounds quite different from the film presentation. In there, in there, it's much more about sort of shaving off the, the kind of rough edges of the character to turn him into a weapon less patriotic and more uh, dispassionate, I think. Yes, no, that's not the way it is in the book. In the book, he, um, I mean, he reads a suicide note from Miss Belinda. I forget if that's in the film or not. No, uh, I don't it's think a long time since I saw the film. No, um, and, you know, he throws it down in fury having read it and then and then there's a sentence yes he now saw her as nothing but a spy and um and in fact uh <laughs> at, at the risk of jeopardizing the pg rating the very last sentence in the book he's um he's calling the the office you know, mi6 or whatever it is and um and and he says you know she was an agent for Redland, blah 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 yes i said was the bitch is dead now into the book yeah mm-hmm. which is a, a very powerful moment of dialogue in in the film and we can discuss the meaning of it but <laughs> but yeah he, he does he informs m in with that exact line of dialogue i see I'd, again i'd forgotten that it's yeah. I I'll, I'll just, the film. i'll just jump in the only 
James Bond film, a James Bond book I've read, or what had read to me is the audiobook of Casino Royale. And what uh, struck me is, of course, it's placed very precisely in time. Bond is a veteran of the Second World War. He was doing this kind of thing during the war. And so there's sort of more of a justification for his remoteness from care, let's say, his psychosis or sociopathy, because, of course, of what he went through in the war to save Britain from Nazi domination. And there's also a thing where every so often he encounters people who've also have had their, their injury. So we think of the Bond villain as having a patch on his eye, and, you know, that's just him. But, of course... The reason why a lot of men in that time were going around with patches on their eyes or were missing an arm was because they'd had them blown off. That's fascinating. Yeah, exactly. So the um, the, the film itself is precisely is he, he talks about his uh, in his in, in his head in the in the book. Excuse me, is he's thinking about um, his time in the war and what he had to do in the war and so on. so it's uh, of course the great thing about Bond is he becomes timeless as a character. Mm. And but I, I don't know what happens in the later novels, but certainly in Casino Royale, it's very much fixed. It could only be at this distance in time from the Second World War. That's fascinating, though, because in in the films I do feel like one of the few times that they flirt with giving him more substance as a character is just to imply trauma. It's always this idea of, well, maybe he's lost somebody that he loved, the whole on a Majesty's Secret Service losing his wife kind of thing that reverberates very, very subtly in the background of a few films after that. Or, say, in the case of the Daniel Craig films, which have that kind of sense of, well, he's lost something, perhaps a family, he's an orphan, he's bereft, all those ideas of him carrying around trauma with him. And as you said, uh, usually the bad guys that he's facing have some sort of disfigurement or emotional kind of issue, you know, whether or not they want to live under the sea or, you know, <laughs> are, are just an incredibly good card player. They seem to have some sort of deformity or uh, injury, something that marks them as traumatized in a way so i didn't know that that actually had its birthplace in the books in a sense and particularly the trauma of after war sorry there was meant to be a question at the end of sorry, that but i was just saying yeah that's great wow mm. no it's, it's it's um no it's it's certainly there and, uh, but of course bond becomes timeless so we can't uh, they couldn't hang on to that as an idea because he needs to be a man of the 80s a man of the 90s a man of the noughts well even to the point of yeah as you said even in the 90s or the late 90s uh, m declares him exactly that like uh, you, you have this death wish i think uh, i wish i could remember the, the line it's at the beginning of goldeneye it's where she calls him a misogynist dinosaur <laughs> like, it's that that idea that uh, he he has a death wish uh, he's a little too sort of cavalier at throwing away his life uh, and that seems to be an adrenaline junkie is how she categorizes him but in any case i'm, I'm sorry was there anything else about the the books that really struck you oh all sorts of things i mean um there's some hilarious incidental things about some of the books um i suppose if we talk about comparisons with the films we might get to some of those um the, the business about his wife being killed and his wanting revenge for that that comes from the books mm. um it is on her majesty's secret service i'm pretty it? sure yes. it is yeah. um and yes, it's. It, I, I didn't find it particularly convincing actually when I read it. But yes, the last scene in the book, they're in a car and his wife gets killed. And I shouldn't laugh at that. I'm sorry, but <laughs> Lazen, no. it's George Lazenby's delivery. Like, oh yes, we'll be fine. She's just sleeping. It's like, oh come on, man. Um, oh golly, don't give it to the male model to say. Okay, well, I, so Bond is first embodied by Sean Connery in Doctor No, and instantaneously, I, th I think it could be argued the character becomes an enduring 
icon and i think some of the tropes of the films like the the bad guy lairs in volcanoes and moon lasers and all that sort of nonsense comes in as the series goes ahead but certainly the the character as portrayed by connery seems to come out fully formed uh, is there anything that you is there anyone wants to speak to that you notice about connery's portrayal of the character well i'll, I'll jump in um, i guess i haven't so far i you did preface this this conversation with the the point that you know that we're not necessarily experts around the table. Here. Absolutely, I, I, I should underline that point that my experience with Bond is fairly limited. But it is it is limited mainly to my experience growing up, where I I just watched the Connery films. I, I lost interest by the time more came along, or, or rather, I, I I'm not that old really. But I, I guess my point is that um, I started from the beginning and lost interest once it all progressed into more but for me connery is what i i haven't read the books either but is what i imagine bond was imagined to be mm. I, I, post-world war ii I guess cold war if bond is going to be anything he's, he's going to be a survivor of mid-20th century atrocities and and he's going to do it with the plomb right i mean you know, he's he's not he's going to be gritty and I think Connery embraces that grittiness really well in a way that Moore just wasn't able to do. I don't, it's just this smarmy, yeah. unlikable. I mean, they're all, all, they're, they're all unlikable, but I guess Moore is just. I, I find him very hard to warm to. Yeah, I don't want to pile on to more but i agree there's to me almost a sleaziness in in the character of bond when more portrays him that weirdly i don't get out of connery even though he's literally slapping women on the butt and you know yeah i can't really put my finger on it i guess it's just the way he delivers the lines and and maybe there's there's more to it in in that i like connery in anything really i (laughs) I think he's a really great actor um whatever he does i think um is worth watching but it's it's just the way he carries himself, the way he delivers those smart aleck lines, which which more just it doesn't seem to do as effectively, in my opinion. Having said that, I, I think Daniel Craig, from what I've seen, does a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to me, he's almost um, looks like he's trying to imitate Connery a little bit. It's funny. Um, I actually, th- I mean, I think that of all the Bonds. Yeah, Daniel Craig comes closest to being what I think the book Bond is meant to be like. And I actually don't find it similar to either Roger Moore or Sean Connery at all. And I mean, I find, I, I love Sean Connery as Bond, but what I love is the, um, it's so gentle and gentlemanly and, and of course not too serious. Sean Connery? This is the way it comes across to mm. me. Oh, um, right. No, I think so, yeah. And, um, really? That's fascinating. I seem well, more thuggish uh, uh, than uh, that. Has, Oh, it doesn't come across to me that way at all. He's got those, you know, the, the, those gentle eyes and the laughing smile. Um, oh. I mean, there's a particular moment in um, Goldfinger. It's right after he's, um, you know, he's doing the judo game with, um, with Pussy Galore and he trips her up and she's fallen over and then he goes to walk over to her and the look on his face, the sort of, yeah, he, he reminds me of one of my cats, actually. <laughs> I think that that's what he manages to do so well. So, yeah. he, so he's mm. got that that hard, gritty side yes. to him, which which needs to come out at times. But um, that softer smile and and likable demeanour mm. is present when it needs to be. Yeah, and I, I think that's what he does so well. More seems to be trying to be suave all the time. Um, and yeah. 
I, I don't think he saw it as his job to do anything else. I mean, mm-hmm. I actually quite like Moore myself, but he, I think in some contexts he once says, look, you know, it's easy to act as Bond. One eyebrow here, one eyebrow there, and two eyebrows when Jaws appears. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. basically what it is. I recently rewatched the first film I, Bond film I ever saw, which is uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Mm. And it, it, you can spend, if you want to have a sober drinking game, it's take a drink every time Roger Moore turns up not wearing a tie. <laughs> 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 he, he he goes to meet the the villain and under the under the very loose cover of being a marine biologist, and um, so he goes down he goes down to the craft with his um, supposed wife, and he he's, he's wearing this impeccable jacket and this beautifully knotted blue tie, and uh, not really Bond is very dressy for when it comes to more. Yeah, well, see, it's funny to hear you say that and, and about that softness in in Connery because I always found. Almost the complete opposite. I get that that sense that Connery is he's a weapon that they send out into the field to do mm. what uh, needs to be done. And what you were describing from the books, that sense of Bond almost resenting having to eat the nice food and put on the nice clothes and kind of play the culture game when that's not really his forte. I thought Connery actually captured that quite well. I always got the sense when he was wearing the suit, he looks great in it, but I always got the sense that that's not really where he's at home that's not the skin that he's comfortable in which again i quite liked in in connery's portrayal whereas more seemed to have more of like he just looked like he would be in a leisure suit anyway like it's just mm. there, there's that one dimension to his performance which again if if you like it i'm sure is charming and, and playful and fun but I, he he never really had that danger that that i think Bond needs that all of the others like I mean Timothy Dalton steered straight into that uh, uh, Daniel Craig seems to do it effortlessly maybe Pierce Brosnan's more of the Roger Moore end of the pool but he's when, still when, he's, uh, when Pierce Brosnan is smashing up St. Petersburg at one point he has to take time to adjust <laughs> yeah, yeah, his heart yes. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm a Moore man I, I, I was I, I Started with Roger Moore, as I say, uh, Spy Who Loved Me was the first one I saw, which was about the time that uh, The Living Daylights came out. Uh, so I always thought of Ro- James Bond as Roger Moore, which, I mean, that, that, so that's how my mind worked, but it also explains, I think, why I eventually got bored of Bond, and uh, because I, I'll come on to this later perhaps, but um, Moore is, I think, not, not in the good way this word is used, he's iconic. Mm. I don't mean he's... As I say, I don't mean it in the the good way. So, um, but I mean that he becomes an just a purely an image, an icon. He could almost have underneath him, I think, copyright Ian Productions or something. <laughs> so he he he's just the image of James Bond. So it's James Bond does. So his films, the the films of that era, um, and a lot of in fact a lot of Bond films. This is how you make a bad Bond film: is have we got the gadgets? Check. Yeah. Have we got the um, jumping f- from one location to another for no discernible reason? Check. Have we got the underground lair? Check. Have we got the stupid villain? Check. Okay, we have got a Bond film. Let's go. Oh, you oh, forgot, sorry, I you've up. got the uncomfortably yes. young women. Yes, that too. Sorry, I, I did. We have forgot the girls, the Bond girls. Have we got the Bond girls? No. Have we got the two Bond girls? Yeah, the one, one needs to die. The exciting, the exciting one who turns out to be bad, who needs to die, <laughs> and the good one. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and so that, that the more films, and this is why I really liked uh, Casino Royale when I rewatched it, is that the uh, so the more films, he, he's just this, he's just he's not even a character. He's just a sort of set of attributes. Yeah. Um, and terrible puns too. The, well, the I, sexual innuendos, uh, keeping the British end up, sir. Like, yeah, all that no, stuff. No, no, no. Just, yeah, they're, they're man. Not like 
Um, that said, my favourite Bond film is Man with the Golden Gun, and I'll come back to why I think later. But uh, but I, I, what I thought about Casino Royale and Daniel Craig in that is that he uh, it was the first time. It, it's credit to the scriptwriters, really. It made sense having um, we'll just chuck this girl in. She's there for a reason. She, yeah. There are motives. She's sent by um, uh, the treasury to cover the money. He has um, one or two gadgets, and it makes sense that he has them. His cat, the things he does, are when he seduces somebody's wife. It's not just there for uh, titillation, or it arguably isn't there for titillation at all. It's it's there precisely because he needs to get the information, mm. and he's doing it. His character, his characterization, not credible character, of um, wanted partly wanted to take revenge and do the finally rubbing the nose in the dirt of the man he's already taken the Aston Martin from. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, and the jumping from location to location, as I say, uh, just before that, I rewatched. As I loved it as a child, the film, uh, the the, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. But there is no obvious reason why Jaws drives James Bond and Major whatever her name is in a van, in a TV van, um, to Karnak. And uh, what, what? Why is he there? Because they want to have a night, a, a fun background. But uh, they want to get from location to location, and it's it, it gets a bit silly. But um, whereas the location shifting in Casino Royale really it makes sense. You know, we've got to be here. We've got to be here. There's a yeah narrative purpose. Yeah. To the, absolutely. They actually told a story that happened to coincide with the James Bond tropes, as opposed to here are the James Bond tropes. Let's stitch them all together. I think the locations are, are vitally important. That, that's part of the reason you watch it. You, you watch it for the aesthetics, right? The, sorry, this might not be politically correct, but you watch it for the beautiful women. Mm-hmm. And, um, beautiful and you, lines, says um, Roger Moore in... Right, yeah, the beautiful but, lines. But it is, it, it's, there's fashion, there's beautiful mm. people, there's like, everything is made to be lush and... Um, and they're, I'm not and so they're filmed, so they're, and they're filmed beautifully yeah. uh, in this respect. I mean, they always love... They seem to film a lot in Venice. I, I, I don't know if it's just my impression, <laughs> but just about... They're in Venice a lot, and, and every time they do, it just looks so beautiful. Mm. And uh, I, I love watching these locations in Bond movies. Mm. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not mm. saying location. you shouldn't have location mm. shooting. It's just that it, it's more that it doesn't flow naturally from the story. Um, it's that it's just simply there to have a nice background. For example, in Man with a Golden Gun, and maybe this was, probably was a budget thing, um, there's uh, a very important scene set in Beirut. And um, there are zero exterior shots in that <laughs> film at all. It's entirely in the studio. Um, so... And, and the story's better for it because the story is about he's got to go to Beirut it explains why he's in Beirut but they're not that bothered about showing you Beirut because the point of the story is taking you there now they could of course have had Beirut in the background as well um, and that would, and it wouldn't have detracted and would have added to the story but um, the, the value of the story was there whereas in a lot of the Bond films it's just jumping from this place yeah. to this place to this place and there's no real reason it's just mm. to have them as a background and they're great to look at sure I, I, I like a film like that one but I, I think there's something superior where it proceeds from the narrative. Which, I mean, I guess brings me to the question, why do they endure? Is it that sort of sense of fantasy, having that kind of travelogue aspect, having the, like, beautiful people doing beautiful things, explosions, fun, excitement? Like, Is there a character in there that we feel invested in? Why, why we, has this film series endured for 50 do years? Do we necessarily... I mean, we all film goers really care that much about James Bond. I mean, James Bond is... He's, for In a lot of the films, um, he's this super expert. Mm-hmm. On more than one occasion, for example, he dismantles a nuclear bomb. 
Oh, in don't fact, even get me started. And in, Roger in, Moore, in precisely in, in fact, Roger Moore does it twice. Roger, yeah. No, but Roger Moore knows every any any time somebody. Oh, where's this wine from? He can smell it, and he knows yeah. exactly what regions. Like it's ridiculous. Yeah, and he, and he knows exactly how um, a nuclear bomb works. In fact, he, he's there in the presence of three <laughs> nuclear submarine crews. <laughs> And he's the one who dismantles the nuclear bomb in order to get the explosive charge out of it. There's no explosive charge in nuclear bombs. Um, to blow up the door. And, and, and he's the one who... Ha- the, the captain of the missile submarine doesn't know that you can't do this and he has to be very careful. But Moore does, or Bond, well, exactly Moore rather than Bond, knows this. And, and they still do it in so, even the most I, I recent think, ones. Like, like, uh, yeah. in, in the... I think it's in Spectre. It's in one of the the very recent ones. Daniel Craig does the same thing. He's in a room full of IT specialists, and he's the one who cracks the computer code. Or or, or in Pierce Brosnan, you know, they're, they're watching like a Russian satellite is giving them footage. He's the one who tracks the tiny little pixelated dot that's a person. It's just ludicrous. Like he has to do literally everything. Well, actually, so he's he's. So I don't think we care terribly much about him because he's this. In a lot of the films, he's this Superman who who knows everything and. Uh, so he's, he's, he's really just this one individual around which we can have this exciting uh, series of events, I think, in, in a lot of the films. So I think that's what draws people in. Is and, but the I promise, that's... you know what you're going to get, and yeah. you will get the two Bond girls. You will get the explosions. You might, the good chance you'll get an underground lair. Um, you will get the absurd gadgets. I guess my question is, is do, are we invited as an audience to imagine ourselves as James Bond? Or are we just watching this? Like, is he a cipher, or, or is he just something... What's our relationship to him as an audience, do you well, think? Well, who in the world would want to be James Bond? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, that's like an yeah. awful, awful person. I, I think that's why you watch it. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I agree with Thomas entirely. You know exactly what's going on. That's what mm-hmm. makes him so predictable and, to an extent, boring. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes they're just boring. That You, you, you know he's going to win this card game. Eventually, right, he loses the first hand, but that's all part of the plan. Like, yeah. The second time he loses a hand, well, yes, there's got to be some time when he loses, but he, you know, there's ultimately there's, he's going to win. That's that's what you watch it for. And it's not the action necessarily, because there, there are better action movies, mm. than, and the, the action filming, the stunts actually are better in many other movies than, than Bond. But, you know, you, you, you know what's coming and, and it's somewhat comforting. It's just like... So did like comfort option. food, you think? Like a I think the fact that he's a spy is really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as many people have commented, the fact that he goes around under his own name everywhere and moreover, yeah. everyone seems to know him is absurd. But setting that aside... <laughs> He's supposed to be a secret agent. I think mm. that's a large part of the appeal. Does he ever do that, though? I get, I, because you're right, that, that's a big component of the narrative. But ironically, <clears throat> with the exception of, say, something like... Uh, I'm sorry, what's the, the second Sean Connery film? The one where they're on the train? From Russia with Love. From, From Russia, Russia with Love. Love. Mm. So with the exception of something like that, where the espionage cat and mouse game is at the centre of the narrative... Uh, as you said, in, in most of the others, he just walks into a room and goes, Hi, I'm a secret agent, James Bond. Like, mm. take me to your lair. There doesn't seem to be that much spycraft going on. Or, or are there examples yeah. where... No, absolutely. In um, Doctor No, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, He, it, it's interesting that he does actually bumble a few times, mm. which mm. is plausible for the character. You know, a man, an agent on his own, under stress, he's going to make mistakes. Now, so he does make mistakes in, in Doctor Makes a huge... He, he doesn't do, yeah. I mean, it's actually quite fair for the book in that respect. He doesn't even save the day there. Other people do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there, again, like 
and, and things like Goldfinger, he spends a vast chunk of the film as a prisoner. Yeah. He's like not doing that much. He's just getting people to tell him what's what's happening and uh, what the narrative actually is that's going on around him. Does it have an incompetent guard that he talks his way out of? Or? Is that in Goldfinger? No, no, I'm just wondering. I mean, that's a, a common theme in Bond films. It's the same The villain with goes the... away, leaving behind it. It's a stupid guard. It's <laughs> Not precisely. It's the, um, the, 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 the Korean guard is outside and... He does it very nicely. He sort of wanders up to the door and waves at him, and then wanders back around the house, and then smiles at him, and then disappears. <laughs> and the guard, who has been completely unsmiling the whole time, wonders what's happening and gets up and goes to investigate, and then one knocks him out. Of course, you just can't get the help these days. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't do that scene these days. But I guess it is. So when I denigrated the spycraft of the, of the film, I didn't mean wholesale. But no, but it, I think just... the premise is important, though. Yeah. I think the fact that he's yeah, there on Her Majesty's Secret Service, however ludicrously it's done, I actually think that's important. Yeah. It's part of the appeal of it. But I think, so when MI6, the real MI6, had a, um, I still don't understand why, a, a large building erected on the Thames, <laughs> um, it, this then had to... Um, turn up in Bond films and get blown up. Yeah, yes, it does get yeah. catastrophically <laughs> blown it, it up. Apparently, it has um, it has speedboat launching tubes as well. <laughs> so, is it, <laughs> <laughs> so is it then that that fantasy that here is a creature who's working for the good of Queen and country? Mm. You know, this this operative that we send into the field who does these amazing, lavish, wonderful things. We don't want to be him, but we're comforted by the thought. That he's out there, maybe like a Batman figure or something. Is is that? I don't think it's or? even that. It's not. It's not like maybe it's a films about the about the seals or the SAS. It's it's it's. it's I, I think we just like. I don't think we 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 relate it to reality at all. Mm. I mean, they they try to have relevance. So in the seventies, there's a whole load of films about energy. Uh, yeah, the thing, uh, man with the golden gun has a sort of background mm-hmm. to energy. It turns out those um, those uh, solar panels that we all have on our houses apparently they're enormously expensive and very difficult to put together, and uh, you can have a laser gun made from them as well. Or something. <laughs> um, I've always said that. Yeah, um, I, I, there must have been a global warming one. Uh, almost recently, certainly, there's certainly there's a Rupert Murdoch is yeah, the evil one. one. Yeah, uh, the Rupert uh, Murdoch one. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, so it, so it, it likes to play on. The tabloid concerns, but I, I, I do think that they're easy to watch. Yeah, I, I think this has an appeal as well, and the only reason I keep watching them is that I, I know it's not going to be very complicated. Actually, mm-hmm. so it looks like it could be. You know, you're these different characters and. It gets very convoluted too. Right. There are moments where the story makes no sense at all. Right. But, but, but overall, it's pretty yeah. simple. Yeah. And and you you can watch it while checking your email. Yes. It, you're, mm. you're still going to enjoy it. Right. You, you you can start watching halfway through a Bond film you've never seen before. And exactly. You're not be able to follow it. <laughs> yes. no I, yes. I do think of them as yeah Sunday afternoon films. Mm. You know, it's something that would just be on TV that you would just sort of drop in and out of. I think that was how I first saw them, was the Sunday afternoon at my grandparents' house or something. It would just be going on. My mother would be, oh, there's a Roger Moore one. I like Roger Moore. You know, that that kind of a thing. It's never, as you said, you, you never have to get tangled up in the minutia of the, of the plot because there is no minutia. It's just go and get object thing or go and trick woman into telling you something. It's It's very straightforward and simple in in all of its moments and yet beautiful to look at lush cartoonish villains and and just playful in every way mm-hmm. i mean I, i've thought of one reason why i my roger moore would be my favorite bond i mean it, it, mostly it must be because he's the one i first saw but also it's because he's very slender in build um and his acting's not that great 
Um, but he's very slender in build, and he is a spy. So he, he, there is at least, even though he does go around saying, hi, I'm James Bond, um, there is at least the idea that he could, he passes for a spy. Whereas Daniel Craig is very, and Sean Connery, too, are both very beefy. Mm. Uh, Tim- the, Timothy Dalton's quite... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah Timothy nice. Dalton, too. Mm. I mean, you really, really want a sort of Vladimir Putin type. <laughs> you, want, you want this totally stony-faced, unmemorable appearance. That's wow. what you want from a secret spy, agent. Yeah. But not a film series. No, not a film series. (laughs) So, but this actually, this is a good opportunity to kind of go around the room and maybe ask that question. Like, who who is the, it doesn't even have to be your favourite, but perhaps who is the Bond that you first think of? And and for you, obviously, Roger Moore. Roger Moore, Man with a Golden Gun. Oh, okay. And the film as well. Oh, yeah. Um, The Man with a Golden Gun, I watch this for pleasure rather than for preparation. It's because it's, it's more plausible. I mean, granted. But uh, then it, you're not scratching your head down. Where do you get all the minions? Which you think for the longest Bond films? Where where would you get these minions? Why do they all speak enough English to be able to follow your orders? The matching jumpsuits. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, whereas Man with the Golden Gun, it's just him and um, Scaramanga and Knickknack. Um, and, and so it's exactly doesn't he end up in a in a in a cage? Yes, um, though um, Bond allows Goodnight to think that he drowned him, uh, and, and so because, precisely because it's one on one, it makes more sense to have a sing, a single secret agent dealing with this single problem. Whereas a lot of the films where he's um, saving the world from destruction or domination by a, mm. a madman. If such a thing actually happened, it would be to, to stop it would require an enormous team of a lot of people. It wouldn't just be one person running through an abandoned volcano. And so, so that's one reason I like Man with the Golden Gun. Also, it's sort of just its general, much more noirish tendencies, precisely because it's just him against against against, against his his enemy. So, uh, Luciano, do you have a well? Connery is you know is my favourite uh, from Russia with Love, oh. and I, I think that was my. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the first Bond movie I saw. And what I what I love most about it are the gadgets. I <laughs> I, 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 I love I that scene where, where he's on, on the train. The, the guy's beating him up. Yeah. And it looks like great this, scene. This is the end of him, but you know it's not. You know how's he going to get out of this? And and he gets out of it in the classic sort of get smart sort of way, right? <laughs> Why don't you open that suitcase over there and you'll find what was it? All the money or that you're after, or, the, or whatever you're after is in that suitcase. And okay, that's that's his out because the, the gas comes out of the suitcase. So just. That sort of escape, I love it. That's classic right. Bond to me. But and I, and I mentioned Get Smart deliberately so, <laughs> because as I was watching, growing up watching Bond movies or the Connery Bond movies, I was watching Get Smart as well. And to me, they're, they're sort of the same almost. Obviously, one's one's um, deliberately satirising. Yellow is it? Um, yeah, I mean, um, Bond, Bond does his own satire. Yes, well, chaos does his own sure, stance, does his own but, satire. Sure, but the you know the the um, the knife that comes out of the shoe that's got some poison on it. Yeah, I mean, that that sort of thing is classic. Get smart, it, it, you know. That's get smart taking a leaf out of, out yeah. of Bond. And that's also, um, I, I mean, the, chaos yeah. as the bad guys are barely parody, barely. Oh, yeah. But the uh, the um, tricking the uh, enemy into making something kill them. The character in is it Boris in yes, Goldeneye with the pen, yeah. and it uh-huh. is a really tense scene because you're counting the clicks <laughs> yeah. to see what he's doing, and eventually, bam! And Jeremy, uh, well, I mean, my favourite film actually remains Goldfinger, and I'm not quite sure why. It may it may be as simple as it was the first one I saw, um, <laughs> but um, I'm just trying to think what else about it. I, I I think the acting 
is very good. I mean, I love Honor Blackman yeah. as, as Pussy, and um, I can never remember the German actor's name who plays Goldfinger, but I like him a lot. And um, yes, I remember. Th- I always thought it was a fun story and nicely executed. Yeah, it's it's actually oddly enough one of my least favorite books. My favorite book is Doctor No, whereas I don't much like the film Doctor No. But so the uh, the film is significantly different to the book, you know, the Goldfinger. They actually make a kind of improvement, I think, in the in the story in the in the book. Um, the basic idea of what Goldfinger is doing is the same. They're going to take out Fort Knox, but they're going to use a nuclear weapon simply to break into it, that's all. Um, I know, <laughs> exactly. <bit> extreme. <laughs> um, well, there's the some business about how, um, you know, there's nothing else that'll get into it. Um, <laughs> and, just... then, no, and then Goldfinger is going to grab all the loot he can and run off to Russia um, and, and defect, basically. Wow. And, and I think... Because the Russians wouldn't take it from him. <laughs> well, well, no, no, it, it's a whole plot with the Russians. And I think in the film, the fact that this is rather... To the extent that any of this can be called realistic at all, somewhat more realistically, the is no, you set off a nuclear weapon to make the gold radioactive, mm. to, to create economic chaos. And that actually makes more sense, mm. marginally more sense. I, I also... I mean, just one last comment about the book, since you, know, you asked me earlier. I mean, as you've been talking, a few things have been coming to mind. First of all, the gadgets are basically absent in the books, and the technical expertise is more or less absent. The, um, to the extent that the bond of the books has technical expertise, it's in card games. And, um, and there are two great set pieces. One of them is the one in um, Casino, um, Casino yeah. Royale, which, of course, was made famous in the film. But the other one is in the book of Moonraker. There's an absolutely <laughs> superb... Um, I think it goes for two chapters, a card game with Drax and Bond um, involved. Well, this then becomes a thing, is you have to have casino scenes. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the secondary things. It, like it's, Baccarat a, it's, it's a good to have, yes. some kind mm. of gambling or casino scene. But what makes it work so well in the books, and you can't translate it into the film, is that it, it, it's in a way what makes the book so good. Wonderful detail. You know, all of the, you know, the cards that are being played and details about how the game works and what's important. And all which of it is, without becoming boring. Yeah, which is much easier to do in, in, exactly. in, a, in a book. You can do it, it in a book. It, one of the annoying mm. things about the film, or the annoying thing about the film, is... They don't quite trust the audience to work out mm. from people's reactions whether this was a good hand or not. Yes. Or just simply, the music could have done it for you. So, so you they, actually have, <laughs> they actually have Mathis yeah. saying, yeah. oh no, now this has to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. bluffing. And it also, his eyes. And also, of course, <laughs> the game has to be poker because that's the only yes. card game anyone mm. knows. Whereas in the book... Specifically, back, Texas Hold'em. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is not a, a game James Bond would play. So in oh. 1952, um, he, play, he plays Baccarat. So, I'm sorry, you mentioned uh, Moonraker. I can't let the opportunity to kick that film go by. Uh, How different is the book from the film? Because it it sounds like you're talking about uh, tense gamesmanship and spycraft. The film gave us a double-taking pigeon and lasers in the stratosphere. So what on earth does the film have to do with the book? Well, in the book, Drax is actually, at least to begin with, he's a hero. Um, he he's someone who has undertaken to protect England forever against um, the dangers of foreign invasion by, by doing something with a... I forget the details, actually, something with a bomb. And Bond is actually called into M's office, and, um, and M says, look, you know, I play cards with this fellow Drax, and I know him, and you know, what do you think of him, blah, 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 and Bond says, oh, he's wonderful, he's a hero. And, um, and M says, yes, there's just one thing, he cheats at cards. <laughs> Dun, and dun, this is dun. no, and that's the point. This is the little beginning of of the whole story, um, and and Bond is called in to investigate this cheating and how he does it and to catch him out, which is why this wonderful set piece 
um, is given. And then it turns out Drax's actual plan is to set his bomb on London. So that's that's all wow. it is in the book. And and Drax is an ex-Nazi. It's <laughs> it's you know who's pretending to be someone else. So so no heading into space at all. There's no the... heading into space. No. Wow. Um, Good. As for myself, I think uh, my my pick, uh, I've probably already tipped my hand, Casino Royale. I, I adore that film. Ironically, I like all of its cynicism because you can tell that it was made by producers and, and writers and directors who were thinking, what what's the thing that we can do in the zeitgeist now? I know, let's reboot the character and give him a kind of a greedy backstory and you know tell the tragic love story that leads up to blah, blah, blah. And yet... I love all of it. Every component of it works. I think it's beautifully shot. I love uh, Craig's depiction of uh, Bond, the sort of extra dimensions that he gets. I like Vespa. I, I think she, as you said, she's got more of a an organic uh, role to play in the film as opposed to just being eye candy that kind of dies. E- or... Eva Green does that deep, soulful look. Yeah, she's got very well, yeah. It's, it's, really it's, it's something in the eyeshadow, I think. A close second would probably be, I'll just throw this in because it's by the same director, Goldeneye, which we've talked about a couple of times as well. Because I think Goldeneye is the perfect distillation of what I like about the old Bond films. It's the Cold War kind of quality, the, uh, you know, the globetrotting big action scenes and silliness. It's, a, it's goofy in a way that Casino Royale isn't. Yeah, Casino Royale, I, 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 was, I must have seen it in the cinema. And I must have thought, this is amazing, what a great film. And then gone to see Quantum of Solace. <laughs> um, because I remember Casino Royale, I don't remember seeing Quantum of Solace, and I remember Casino Royale ending in an absurdly annoying scene in the desert. Um, which it doesn't, <laughs> no, that's Quantum no. of Solace. <laughs> and so I must have seen Quantum of Solace and thought, well, this is rubbish, I'm not going back to this. So, and it, it then coloured my mem- memory of Casino Royale. Well, because it functions as basically it, an epilogue for Casino Royale, is why it's kind of a rubbish film it's n- it's not a story in and of itself it's it's the cleaning up mm. of the previous film Time they do it sense. terribly and it's edited pathetically uh, and the story makes no sense if you well, I mean, the it. casino royale is, is i think a um, it's a legitimately good film and i was thinking action thrillers what are what are the really good action films and, and i couldn't really think of a bond film that compared to something like die hard possibly lethal weapon but but to think about die hard is, is, is the die hard films they're they're usually well, the first three anyway are very time constrained they're set in a very limited time and that adds the tension it helps you do it and yeah. so a lot of the bond films they're, they're, i think they they that's why you can drop into and drop out of them. It's yeah. because you, you see, oh, I'm, I'm, I'll just see the big middle scene, you know, where he gets drugged or whatever, and then you go away. But Casino Royale works as a, an entire film from the, the moment when um, the guy he's eventually going to shoot gets off the lift at floor six, because of course he's not yet 007, um, right up to the end where, um, and it's always the scenes are always taking place beside water or near water. I don't quite know what the significance of water is, but it's... Well, it's, Vespa dies in water. Ves- Vespa so. dies in water. It's all leading up um, it's to all in. It's all in Venice. It's a baptism of fire that yeah, he's going to... Yeah. Well, baptism of water, anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, going into the casino, the, I think I'm... I don't think I'm adding this from memory, is that the um, cobbles outside the casino are dusted with rain. Mm. Um, and, and uh, there's a the, shower scene where he, he's kind of comforting exactly her yeah, murder yeah, and, yeah. That, that very weird time slip where you, where you have a... You jump forward and jump back. Can't yeah. quite... I still can't quite work out the sequence of what happened there. And then, so the final scene taking place on the side of, well, it was Lake Como, I assume it's meant to be Lake Como, not somewhere else, where he's saying, the name's Bond, James Bond. And he's finally in the suit, and, yeah. and again, you know, all those rough edges. So he doesn't have a water PPK, he's got some massive sniper's <laughs> rifle. <laughs> 
Which does beg the question, like, so he's got a sniper's rifle. He he obviously took out Mr. White's foot. Yeah, he took out his foot from one presumes a great distance, and then what legged it over to him? Well, it might have been from round the corner of the house, or with something. a sniper rifle. But well, it, it, it's not. It's I, I, I say sniper rifle. It's a, it's a large. Um, it's clearly a um, an infantryman's weapon. Okay. I don't know. We can all agree it makes no sense, but it's great. I do think my, my favourite moment, if I, I mean, this is perhaps unrelated to anything that's been discussed so far. <laughs> no, no, please. I do have one moment in Casino Row which I, I very much like. I think it was it uh, before he had a heart, a cardiac arrest or after. <laughs> I mean, uh, the whole card game sequence at some point, he's, he's just having a terrible time. And he, he sits down at the bar to uh, think about what he's going to do next. Someone offers him a uh, martini and they ask him, shaken or, or stirred, and he says, do I look like I give a damn? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I did that really well. I, like, I quite like that. And again, that's... Yeah, what I, it, just, it, fits, it, fit, it fits how he's portraying Bond. Which, yeah. which again, is I, yeah. I know it's... Maybe there's a bit of cynicism in this, but I do love the way that they, they present those Bond tropes and flip them. Like you mentioned earlier on, he seduces the, the wife of the guy that he's following... But he doesn't actually bother to sleep with her. It's it's more just about he, he's literally just trying to get information. Now, if that was Roger Moore, yeah. he would wait till the next morning and uh, before he goes to Miami, see you later, and she'll yeah. inevitably die. But that that idea of him actually being more devoted to the mission, or actually not giving a crap about how his martini is made, and not wearing the suit, you know, going out of his way to hold off on those tropes that sneak back into the later films but but still I, I like that I like that they actually took the time to not challenge I mean I don't think it's a very complicated uh, film that's that's trying to rock your understanding of who the character Which is very but, but I, exactly mm-hmm. but but I like that they at least as you said they playfully nudge your it's as though no Bond film ever happened and they just simply said well here are these Bond novels let's make movies of them and so they weren't beholden to the tradition. Even and to the point of, as you mentioned uh, earlier on, there, there's no cue. There's no gadgets. Uh, I mean, there are gadgets, but there's not. Similarly, we can still go back and watch and enjoy the old Bond films, or apparently the later Daniel Craig films. I haven't seen any of them. Uh, Spectre. is pretty bad. Yeah. Because they do something incredibly stupid with Blofeld that probably shouldn't be mentioned. Okay, don't. Um, just as a I heard the Skyfall was really good. Skyfall's great. But, again, sorry, now I'm going to go off on a rant. <laughs> but the the Daniel Craig films, and I love most of them, but they're very strange because they kind of skip over the actual activity of Bond being a spy. He's, uh, in, in the first film, Casino Royale, it's an origin story. How does he become this man? Quantum of Solace is about the immediate aftermath of his trauma. So it's, it's basically connected to Casino Royale. Then we get this weird jump where suddenly in Skyfall, he's the grizzled old dinosaur that they have to drag back into the field and maybe he's not up to it anymore. It's, it's this strange... You skip the moment where he's actually Bond. Uh, and the same thing with Spectre. It becomes this whole weird backstory thing that's trying to tie all of the narratives together in a very convoluted way. It, it's fine, but it's just not not that good. And and I don't think really what you're looking for in a Bond. Um, any any final thoughts that we wanted to share on on Bond? Our experience, our expectations of where the series might go. You expect me to talk, not Mister Bond. I expect you to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those one-liners better than the sort of sexy double entendres. Is mm. it? Yeah, the, the, the lines like that. It's, uh, Shocking. There's um, the, it's not a Bond film, but go and rewatch 
The Rock, or watch it if you've never seen it, <laughs> no. with the idea that Sean Connery is still playing James Bond. Well, that's more or less what they... <laughs> yeah. That is what they do, isn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I is must be losing my six should be gone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not uh, pride. It's lunacy. <laughs> and I edited myself there. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, I, I, I love the premise of that film. One lone retired secret... British Secret Service agent defeats an entire unit of crack US Marines yeah, yeah. succeeding where another unit of crack US Marines has already failed <laughs> but again and it's that's Sean like Connery Bond. so you buy it alright so if you enjoyed this podcast then please do subscribe we have new episodes every other week and if you like what we're doing here please do leave us a review on iTunes those five star reviews really do help if you'd like to comment on anything that you've heard offer feedback or uh, present your thoughts on Bond, please do drop us a line. So I want to thank Luciano, Thomas and Jeremy for joining me today. I'm much appreciated. Pleasure. Yeah, yeah. great. Uh, and we will be back next time with another Campion Conversations. We hope that you can join us then. This episode brought to you by Annoying Background Sounds. Do you love to hear the random pops and hisses and breathy noises that have been left in your favourite podcast recordings? Do you swoon in delight at the way a presenter coughs or shifts in their chair <clears throat> or inexplicably wanders off mic? How about poorly edited music cues or interstitial wipes that go nowhere? How about rhetorical questions? Huh? You like them? then why not try out annoying background sounds? This collection of barely concealed throat clearings, distant doors closing, and the slightly haunting sound of laughter echoing down a corridor will add distracting, unsettling ambiance to any occasion. Annoying background sounds. Was that a dog barking? Campion Conversations is a production of Campion College of the Liberal Arts, Australia.